Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the first program in our series this year, 2023, to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We are featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about comprehensive planning. Why bother? A number of towns in Hancock County are doing, have done, are thinking of doing comprehensive planning. So what is it? Why do Maine towns do it? Why should they do a comprehensive plan and how often? What comprises a comprehensive plan? What difference does it make in the community? Why should people care? This show was pre-recorded on January 16th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guest today. Susan Lassard is the Bucksport Town Manager. She's managed five towns over a long and illustrious career and has done comprehensive planning in several of them, including in Bucksport. Welcome, Susan. Noel Musson. Noel is principal planner with the Musson Group. He has 25 years of experience working on planning, economic development, and permitting projects. Uh, welcome, Noel. Hello. And Evan Rickard, um, sometimes known as the godfather of comprehensive planning in Maine. Um, he is now enjoying a very busy retirement, but Evan was director of the state planning office under Governor Angus King and a consulting planner to the town of Orono for many years. Uh, welcome, Evan, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. So let's get started. I'm going to put the first question to you, Evan, and this is sort of a comprehensive planning 101. Just take a couple of minutes to explain to our listeners what it is. Well, a comprehensive plan is a long-term look at the town growth, um, how, what the town wants to be, how it can manage, how much growth it might expect to have, what kinds of growth, and how it can manage that growth for public health and safety. Everything from sewer and water supply infrastructure to recreation to the kinds of housing uh, that should be located in different parts of the community and business activity, economic development. It is legally the basis for townwide zoning. In Maine, municipalities do not have to have townwide zoning, but if they are going to have townwide zoning, they must have a, a comprehensive plan that is consistent with the uh, guidelines and goals of the state's growth management law. And I suppose it can also reflect planning for depopulation, like population shrinking, schools, school populations going down and stuff like that? Yes. Uh, the comprehensive plan really is tailored to whatever the situation and needs of a community are. There's not a straitjacket set of requirements. If a community is losing population and trying to reverse that or deal with it in some way, yes, that can become the focus of the comprehensive plan. It really is... Uh, customized to whatever the community's situation is and how it how they perceive their situation to be in the coming years. Noel, do these plans have uh, you know a pretty standard set of components in your experience? Yeah, there is a standard set of uh, requirements that are reflected in the Growth Management Act that we have to 
work through. Um, let, let me just pause you there and say, what is the growth management act? Oh my. That, I'm gonna, <laughs> I will put you in the description, <laughs> but maybe Evan can jump in and just describe it a little bit better. Um, I'll take a whack, but it's the state's uh, guidance uh, and laws related to comprehensive plans and how um, things should be looked at um, related to growth and growth management. Do you want to say more about that before we go to the standard components, Noel? Evan, sorry. Yeah, yes, uh, I, what Noel said is is correct. I, reaching back in, in legal terms, zoning is a tool that by its nature discriminates. It says you, property owner over there, can do this, but you, property owner over there, cannot do this. So it's treating different people, different property owners differently. Now, the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution generally says you've got to give equal protection to everybody. There's a there, the, uh, due process clauses in the 14th Amendment. And uh, when zoning started to ramp up in the United States in the, or in the 19-teens and the 1920s, there was a court case, Euclid versus Ambler Realty, that challenged the constitutionality of zoning on that basis. Uh, the court, for various reasons, found that zoning was a legitimate and legal tool uh, and that the regulation of growth through zoning uh, and development through zoning did not violate the 14th Amendment. But there must be a tie between your regulations and the public health, safety, and welfare. The comprehensive plan is the mechanism by which you document the needs of public health, safety, and welfare that can underline, underlie the zoning. And that is black letter law. What was the um, main state statute that you referred to? The state statute is the Growth Management Act. So the Growth Management Act is the umbrella statute that permits towns That's to right. have zoning under a comprehensive plan. Yeah. Right. Okay. In the wake of Euclid versus Rambler, there became some model uh, enabling ordinances, and virtually every state in the United States has that. Some states, such as Maine, uh, modified the, the model and uh, created things that like our Growth Management Act. Okay, so under the Growth Management Act, come back to what are the standard components of a comprehensive plan? Yeah, so we we look at um, a range of different things, including housing, um, economy, um, natural resources, farming and forestry, future land use, existing land use, and that's really starting off like the kind of the analysis of of what is building the picture of what a community really is. You know, using all those different things. If you're on the coast, uh, dealing with marine resources and thinking about those kinds of things, uh, population, and different you know, high level kind of topic areas that that to me is really sort of like frames out the the way that we start to look at different topic areas for um, building a comprehensive plan. And very hot topics right now, climate change, remediation, affordable housing, working waterfronts. Would those all be potentially yep. covered? Yep. Um, um, I would say uh, the sustainability is like the term that I, I try to use um, for things, you know, like climate change and those kinds of things. And that isn't necessarily a topic area in a comprehensive plan, the way that housing or even uh, working waterfront topics would be. But uh, the way that we tend to approach it is sustainability and those things kind of flow through all these other different topic areas. If you're talking about transportation networks, how do you think about 
sustainability in those ways. If you're talking about marine resources or economy, there's a lot of sustainability elements uh, in that. Some communities actually do have sustainability chapters, but those aren't required chapters. They're just the decision that the community wants. Public health is another one that you can kind of flow through different topic areas, but you could also create a chapter dedicated specifically to that. So Susan, you've done a few of these in your career. In your practical experience, what makes a comprehensive plan succeed or fail? Actually, the the key in my experience to making comprehensive planning succeed is finding ways to engage your citizens in its um, development. A lot of comprehensive planning is data. Who are you? How many people are there? You know, what is your what is your transportation network? A, a lot of data-driven things, but in in determining sort of what that does for your future planning, where do you want to be in relation to all this data? Where are you in relationship to all this data? In my experience, the best ones that I've ever been involved with have been sort of like making sausage, which is ugly, but really good at the end of the day. And the reason is, is that more people have been engaged. Um, Bucksport is a perfect example. Bucksport was working on a comprehensive plan in 2014. It was nearly to the end. And poof, the mill closed, which turned the comprehensive plan on its head, literally. Went from the town with a mill to the town without a mill and basically started the process over even in identifying what we had because the loss of the job of jobs was so significant. But for us, it became, became a great tool as part of where are we going from here to work th- through this process. And because of the nature of what was happening, we were in, it, able to engage a lot more people than I have had the ability to do in other communities that had not gone through a crisis. Hmm. So there's a like a an instigating factor that makes everybody see how important this is and um and jump on to help it be successful. Interesting. Exactly. Um if there's an example of a community that that has done good planning it's Bucksport um or it would not have survived the loss of the mill in the way that it did but in particular to comprehensive planning, I think what had occurred um, certainly galvanized more people to engage in a positive way about the future of their community. So Evan, in your experience, and you've had pretty broad and long experience too, what do you see that makes these plans um, successful or not? And what role does implementation after the planning process it, what what role does implementation play? And maybe while you're at it, you could just talk about the process a little bit. Like, how does it work? Sure. Uh, the growth management law, in fact, requires public participation. But as Susan says, the effectiveness of that and the extent of it depends on the willingness and the patience of those who are organizing the effort to um, make it all happen. There's a tremendous, and the best comprehensive plans are, are the result, as Susan said, of deep 
participation by the various interests from residents to businesses and industries and educational institutions and so forth. And there are really rapid feedback loops in the best plans. And sometimes the hardest part is for the committee that's charged with developing the plan to keep its patience, to not be insulted, to not be (laughs) mad that their hard work is being criticized. Just listen. Listen and respond, adapt. That is such a good analysis of it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The committee is the one that struggles the most, both with first getting everyone to engage and then sort of herding all the cats that are that show up in the process. And that's where people like Noel and Susan step in and as facilitators of that and just say, so I think the best plans and the ones that I've done that I think have worked out best, we hold up a sign at the beginning of the process and say, no solutions. There is no shortage of solutions in this world. There's a shortage on agreement of the problem, the nature and extent and cause of the problem. And if you can reach an understanding of, yeah, that's a problem. And yes, this seems to be the cause or the combination of causes. It's much easier then to get to a solution. And uh, so that's kind of a best practice that I have followed. Now, the implementation part, where comprehensive plans fall apart often is not in the adoption, it's in the implementation. The, uh, the policies that are incorporated into the plan um, are only half serious. They don't have the buy-in they need and so forth. So um, the policies that are incorporated into the comprehensive plan, and there are some policies that have to address certain areas under the growth management law, need to be realistic and achievable within a, a reasonable time frame, you know, being two to three years. So speak to some of those things that have to be in there, Noel. Speak to some of the things that have to be in a comprehensive plan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there, there are a few things that are required to be in a comprehensive plan, um, like a um, certain percentage of your new housing stock needs to be affordable and, and some other, other, you know, language requirements. But I think the, the main thing, just to kind of reflect back on what other people are, are saying is, um, you know, building consensus is the biggest hurdle in a comprehensive planning process. And it's also the most um, undervalued part of the process. So, you know, when you get together as a community and you start to think about, well, how much time is this going to take? How much um, money sometimes is this going to take? And what are we going to get for it? You know, it's nice to see at the end of the day, a giant, you know, document that you paid for, or you spent a lot of time on. Um, But it's really the part that sort of goes on, not at the very beginning, but really through the meat and at the very end of a comp plan that is the most valuable time. Um, Some of the things that we're really trying to do is, you know, take time at the beginning to work on uh, updating the data. So creating the picture that you're working from to build sort of a common foundation before um, committee meetings even start so that we have all that stuff done. We have a bunch of key findings listed out that we can then start to review and see if we can get agreement on. And then we're not spending, um, you know, months and months just sort of reviewing data. Uh, And then we're really sort of jumping into the things that I think are, A, most people are interested in, which is why they join the committees, and B, um, you know, the valuable stuff that you have to really work through. Which I I hear you all saying is the community vision, the shared vision is the 
uh, yeah. achieved here. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the shared vision. I think it's the, uh, you know, here's what we can recognize uh, is our is our starting point. These are the big issues that we need to try to face. And here are some here are some guardrails by which we want to start to tackle those things and come to come to an agreement on how to do that. And then and then it's then it's true. Like what we're trying to do a lot in our the plans that we're working on today is, you know, don't don't lose all the ideas that are generated, but really spend some time focusing on, OK, what can you realistically do within the time frame of a comprehensive plan? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a focus. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our topic today is comprehensive planning. Why bother? Our guests this afternoon are Noel Musson, principal planner of the Musson Group, Evan Rickert, former director of the State Planning Office, and Susan Lassard, Bucksport Town Manager. This program was pre-recorded on January 16th. No listener calls are being taken at this time. Noel, you're a process guy. How does this get started in a town like let's say a town already has a comprehensive plan but it's 20 years old i mean if they maybe they don't even have a comprehensive plan maybe they don't have zoning why do they decide to even pick this up in the first place uh yeah i think um just to get back to something sue mentioned earlier is that you know sometimes comprehensive plans start if you don't have one or you have a really old one because something is happening in your community that is forcing you to look at the way things are happening a little differently um you were working on, with some communities in down east maine who are really starting to look at co their comprehensive plan that's really old because of changes potential changes in the commercial fishing business mm -hmm. industry so what are we going to do if you know all these regulations fundamentally change the way our economy is operating um, sometimes it's just uh, an update. So we want to check some boxes. We want to make sure we're eligible for grants. Um, but there's usually something that kind of triggers that um, process. And How does the grant eligibility figure in here? Like, is there are the ways that towns can only get certain money if they have a plan? Yeah, uh, some grants. Yeah, they do tend to have some ties. It ebbs and flows, I think, a little bit. But a lot of state grants in particular are tied to consistent comprehensive plans. I, I saw you nodding there, Susan. What I, I guess there are some financial incentives for having a good one or a current one or? Um, it, well, actually in some grant state grant applications, it's a requirement that you have a comprehensive plan that is compliant with the state um, standards. Um, the process of comprehensive plan isn't just that it's developed at the local level, it's then sent to the state for review and approval. And once that's received, then the state grants that are significant and, and many of communities, including mine, uh, take advantage of as many of those as possible. And so it's certainly an incentive to keep our comprehensive plan as current as possible. So talk about that current business, Evan. I mean, if are the state incentives based on having a comprehensive plan that's not that old, or um, yeah, it's a little fuzzy. Uh, yeah, they uh, there was a law that passed it at one point. At first, the initial originally every ten years. Okay, and that kind of is a benchmark, uh, but it's honored more in the breach than anything else. Um, there was a, a, a statute or an amendment that was passed some years ago that said, you know, a plan that was adopted before a certain year is no longer automatically consistent. Um, and so you have to update. And I think that was 2012, that was 10 years ago. 
11 years ago almost. And, but I don't think there is a requirement. I think it's really how fast is the town growing? How is it changing? Is there a catalytic event that causes something to change? But every 10 to 12, 15 years, it should certainly be looked at, um, at the very least. It takes about two years, to my experience, to get a comprehensive plan started and adopted, and then another couple of years to implement the key provisions of it. So, is that mostly zoning then, or the key provisions? Oh, uh, it's not just zoning. Zoning is a key provision for 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 sure. Um, but it's um, it's things like sewer and water supply extensions, utility in infrastructure, road improvements, economic development things, um, creating certain special districts for kind of development or working on an affordable housing project, et cetera. There are lots of things, and it really depends on the community's plan where they put their priorities. The other thing that, excuse me, that no, comprehensive planning um, does in terms of zoning is that if your comprehensive plan is good and it is consistent, your zoning is consistent with that to a really good degree, it is a protection for the town in terms of lawsuits that are filed in terms of land use cases. And that is significant in this day and age when every three minutes somebody's suing somebody for something. And many of the times it relates to land use. And so for us, that is certainly a, a consideration in keeping ours current, not that we anticipate a lot of lawsuits, but in the event that they are, that um, the town has done everything it can to protect itself through that planning and zoning process against negative outcomes. So I hear Susan putting Bucksport up as an example of a town whose future was really so much better managed because they had a good plan at a moment of crisis. And I wouldn't ask you to name the town, but do any of you have an example of a town that kind of got in trouble and wished they had a plan? Well, years ago, uh, there was a town and a suburb in um, the greater Portland area that uh, really ran into some serious difficulties on lake, lake water quality mm -hmm. because they could not they could not regulate the development around that lake in a way that they wished to. And um, uh, their solution was, well, we, 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 need, we need to have some proper zoning and so forth. Of course, they would have shoreland zoning, but that this goes beyond that. Um, this happened to be a community where there's a water supply and, and other important functions of the, uh, of the lakes. There was, and to go and to Susan's point, uh, there was a town. Uh, there is a town, uh, I'll Scarborough, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, which which has done some really tremendous planning work over the last twenty years. Uh, Noah probably is familiar with some of that, uh, maybe thirty years. Uh, but Route One was always an issue in Scarborough, and um, uh, and they they over over a period of years really upgraded their comprehensive plan and related zoning for some very effective development programs along there. And to Susan's point about the legal aspect of this, one of those places at Dunstan Corner included a what we think of as a 
new urbanist kind of development, relatively dense, relatively compact, with multiple uses in it, um, that was consistent with the comprehensive plan, but the town got sued by, by the residents. They put up a petition and it went to referendum and it lost. Uh, the developer went to court and said, uh-uh, comprehensive plan says it right here. And the court upheld the developers, uh, what had been approved by the town. Right. It is a legal basis that has, I, I like to say that the, the, the growth management law does not have a lot of teeth, but it has a tooth. And you can, <laughs> you can gum something to, uh, you know, to where you want it if you try hard enough. If you work it, yeah. So I'm, I'm a little bit interested about how these um, comprehensive plans get started in towns. I mean, obviously it costs money to do it. Um, maybe it's controversial in a town. Some people want to spend the money. Some people don't want to spend the money. Um, is this a partisan issue? What happens when there are disagreements in towns where one faction wants to do it and one might not? Noel, have you had experience with that? Uh, well, fortunately for me, we usually come in on the end where it's already been decided that we <laughs> to do a comprehensive plan. Um, but I do think that they have had some experiences where it's a struggle to decide, you know, how to prioritize, um, you know, seeking some assistance for facilitating the process or trying to do it um, internally. And that's that seems to be a pretty big debate. Other or do it at all. Like, why bother? Not you yeah. know, we're fine the way we are. I mean, do, have you, any of you seen that happening? Well, there's certainly towns that have a, a fundamental clash between property rights and regulation. There have been towns that have resisted, not so much doing the comprehensive plan, but the content of the comprehensive plan and getting it passed. Um, I mean, this is a fundamental balancing act between the rights of property, the rights of the marketplace to respond to opportunities and to help shape the growth that's going to happen, and the duty to regulate in the interest of the public health, safety, and welfare. And that will happen almost every place. Yeah. Every neighborhood, almost every street, almost every town, almost every region. And that's just, it's healthy. It's a healthy back and forth as long as you can stand the heat. And what does the heat look like when it comes? Susan knows that, don't you? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, the struggle between property rights and what's perceived as local control, someone telling someone what they can do on their property. Um, I managed a community that went through a significant strife in terms of that. At the end of the day, uh, zoning is still intact. Uh, the comprehensive plan is still a part of that ethic. And it was a painful several years, but it was really an educational process for everyone on, on both sides, so to speak, of the issue. I'm not sure prior to that, that I understood the, and I'll call it fear, that some people have over others telling them what to do on their property. Like this is a step to something worse. And that sounds a little extreme, but it, I lived this. <laughs> I know exactly how that, that went, but we worked through all of it. The community's doing fine, but it was a very painful and divisive 
time for the town. But the, the thing that I found, everybody hates zoning because nobody really wants anyone to tell them what to do. I, I mean, that's just a basis and that's that's fine. And I find that what happens is everybody hates it until somebody's going to do something next door that you don't want done. And then they call and say, why isn't the town stopping this? Why didn't you, you know, and if you have some sort of land use that regulates that, then people have a reasonable idea what to expect when they buy a property that can happen next door or that can happen in their area and they can make a decision based on that investment with some sense of security that that's going to continue. And since for most people, the purchase of their home is their biggest financial investment, knowing that where they choose to put it, how they choose to build it, it that the neighborhood's not gonna change dramatically. It, those things are safeguards, but they're also not, property rights. I mean, we've deemed these areas will be this this way, and that takes away the rights of others to put a gas station next door mm-hmm. or to do something like that. So, yeah. yeah, this idea of reciprocal advantage is really important in the idea of zoning. You know, prior to zoning, your only route was to take a nuisance lawsuit to court after the thing had happened. Zoning is preventive in that way. And I accept it. I accept the restriction on my property because I know my neighbor has the same restriction. So it's a reciprocal advantage idea. That said, zoning and land use stuff can go overboard. It absolutely can. And it, it uh, based on biases or, or perceptions or whatever. And, you know, the affordable housing crisis is not entirely attributable to that, but it is certainly partly attributable to that. Right. And and sprawl, uh, rural towns losing agricultural land and and being converted into these low-density suburbs with massive automobile dependency and so forth is all part of that. It's not solely the reason, but it's part of it. And uh, we have to recognize that. Yeah. Um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Evan Rickert, former director of the State Planning Office, Susan Lassard, Bucksport Town Manager, and Noel Musson, principal planner with the Musson Group. Our topic today is comprehensive planning. Why bother? This show was pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. And we're talking just before the break about the tensions between private property rights and community goals. And this is such a fundamental thing in American politics, like freedom and individual rights versus um, the community vision and uh, the collective ideal. And uh, I am sure you see that playing out when these planning projects get going, don't you, Noel? Yeah, to some degree. And um, I wonder, I was just thinking um, earlier uh, when Evan and Susan were talking about, you know, whether or not, and maybe this is, these are things that we try to do, but reframing the whole conversation around a comprehensive plan and that it isn't really a zoning ordinance. It's really helping a community figure out the, I I would say that's the guardrails for future decision-making. You know, these are the things that 
uh, we this is the direction that we want to head in as a community. Um, these are the guardrails for discussion, but we're not like coming up with the solution or the the zoning or the the answer to that. And so I think a lot of the challenges of of you know getting past that you know inherent conflict between property rights and and zoning is part of in a comprehensive plan setting is really just to reframe the conversation um, and start to ask questions. Uh, of the participants about, you know, what is it that you're worried about or how how can we start to create kind of that really high level understanding of the concerns of the community versus the, you know, you shall not have uh, this here versus that. Right. I mean, I, I know you're talking about how to get past this, but surely planning and zoning, you know, in some states, maybe not here, has been used in the in the past for exclusionary purposes that anti-poor, anti-immigrant, anti-black I mean, how do you get by that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, and as Evan mentioned earlier, you know, it is happening and it can happen in, in even in Maine when it comes to, um, you know, affordability and thinking about the housing crisis and where, you know, different types of housing is going to go. And it's a challenge to really try to work through those processes. And I think, again, it gets back to um, valuing the time that is necessary to start to build understanding and consensus around what the issues are. Um, there's no easy way to, you know, facilitate through that conversation. It's happened in a, in a bunch of communities and in, in a comprehensive plan setting, particularly when we're talking about housing and increasing density in areas that people, you know, bought into, you know, thinking it's only going to be this kind of development, but now we're trying to figure out where in a community, you know, more housing might be necessary versus mm -hmm. like what Evan was saying, trying to protect and maintain a rural character in some areas or minimize, um, you know, the need for automobile dependency and those kinds of things. So there's some, there are some real challenges to overcome. And, and a plan does, while it's not zoning, it absolutely is not zoning. It is the framework, as Noel says. It does have to have policies and proposed actions that are specific enough that they can, in fact, be implemented and not so general as that can be anything, mean anything to anybody. I will say that three or four times now in Maine over the last 50 years, 40 years in major ways because municipalities did not step up to provide for certain things like affordable housing, the state has stepped in and asserted its authority. And it did that with mobile homes and modular housing. It did that with group homes. It did that with shoreland zoning. And now it has done it as of last year with um, with uh, question, questions of density and multifamily development. It's really better if the towns come up with their own solutions, but to the extent that many don't, there are have been times when the state has stepped in and uh, tried to look out for a broader public interest. Oh, go ahead, Susan. Excuse me. Um Bucksport only has 5,000 people. Hamden had 8,000 and Vinyl Haven had 1,500 plus the 4,000 that came. These are the places where you work these before, are, These right? are the places that I've managed, some of them. So for me, comprehensive planning and the communities I've been in has been almost a personal experience because it's possible to build relationships with people across the spectrum in that kind of a population base. And I think that when we're talking about how do we deal with hard subjects, how do we deal with the need for affordable housing? How do we need deal with the need to alter 
a plan that's been this way for a long time, but the need has changed. We ha see more disenfranchised people, those kind of things. In a community that has a good communication structure within itself, not just the government, but community groups that interact with each other that represent a wide range of people, we can have these community conversations and sometimes they're really difficult, but we can have them it, as opposed to it just blowing up and us not being able to talk about anything. And the good part of that is that when you have a lot of people from a lot of different sections of your community conversing about a topic and understanding better the need, then when you need to do something a little different or you should be doing something a little different, that conversation goes more smoothly. Change can happen without people standing on the sidewalk with signs. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, or petitions or those kind of things because, right. because the community itself is invested in understanding what these things are. We have a group called Bucksport Next. And what it is, it's a group of groups. All the various, you know, there's like 35 different entities that are represented, meets quarterly. And all it does is share information about what each other is doing, where we're going, the topics get raised. But it's a communication tool to reach as many people in our community as possible. And so when something hard comes up, it ends up there and the community gets feedback on how to move forward. So Evan, when, when a community decides to do a comprehensive plan, like what happens? What's the process? The, like what, this, the council or the select board votes to do it or it goes to town meeting, then what? Yes, the, the legislative body decides to do it. It will uh, appoint a committee and that committee hopefully will represent the different interests in the town, the different expertise in the town. It's usually, my experience has been in the nine to 15 person range, that, that sort of thing. And you're mentioning diversity on that planning committee, right? Yeah, oh yes. Okay, go ahead. Absolutely. Yes. Um, it sh in my view, it's nice to have at least one of the, if it's a town council form of government, uh, or, or selectment, one of those folks on so that they become a communication link with some of the final decision makers. It's good to have planning board member on um, some of the, but it's, it's really good to have uh, neighborhood representatives and representatives of the Chamber of Commerce and, and so forth. So that committee comes together. Uh, there are typically funds to hire people Good people like Noel mm -hmm. <laughs> to uh, to do some of the real work, although it's, that's not mandatory in any way. The town of Rockport did almost an entirely citizen-based, citizen-driven, a citizen-run comprehensive plan, and it was a good comprehensive plan. But I mean, you, and I, I think did Orland just do one without hiring anybody? But I mean, you're talking about facilitating some pretty difficult conversations, which yeah, I know myself is a rare skill. So. Right. And, and knowing where the data is and how to collect it and right. making sure it's solid and so forth. It's it's not easy, but occasionally it's been done, especially in some of those smaller towns. I can imagine a Vinyl Haven, for example, doing such a thing. But um, in the, certainly in towns of any size, they almost always need some outside help. 
And so that is often uh, an early step, as Noel said, to collect data, get some of that stuff that is a grind, but can be very interesting <laughs> if presented in a good way um, out of the way. Um, and I, as I say, I, I, as that planned, as that committee is meeting and holding neighborhood meetings, holding informal hearings, serving food, <laughs> food, food and drink. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, have it a celebration almost have it, make it fun and, uh, get, get those folks together to really talk about some of these issues, but don't talk about solutions. No solutions up front. Nobody's saying what we ought to do is this. What we should do is that. What we got to do is this other thing. Say, here is what we think is a problem. Here's why we think it's a problem. Here's what we think the cause of that problem is. Can we get agreement on this and talk about that? Once you can reach that stage, the solutions kind of present themselves. They're not always easy, but they kind of present themselves. And sometimes that can be the whole first year. Yeah. So, Noel, talk about some of the techniques you use to get the right amount of citizen engagement. Like you get a good diverse planning committee. They do a skills assessment. They know whether they need to hire somebody or not. But that's still only half the battle if the people in the community don't show up, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're trying uh, a lot of different ways to try to get people engaged in a process um, from the standard. Um, let's let's have a community meeting and see how many people show up with lots of food and um, a drink, as Evan suggested, to, um, you know, going to different um, local organizational meetings to uh, using technology to try to get input. Um, you know, it's really just, in, in my experience, is trying as many different things as as possible. Also, like talking to the to the you know the committee members to say what what's been working in the past in your community in order to get the the word out. Do we write you know articles in the newspaper? Does the town have um, something that they send out in the mail? Um, we we do surveys often um, as much as we can to try to get out and do stuff. We uh, if you're a town meeting former government, just having a booth at the town meeting can sometimes be a really good way to just get get some feedback from people um so yeah it's a struggle sometimes but it's a lot you know people are busy and you really want to hear from the people that don't always go to every single meeting um, those voices that are not always yeah. represented yeah right those are the people that we really try to reach out to more times um multiple opportunities to try to hear from them i mean you're talking about a pretty active engagement effort of community outreach yeah yeah, one um, one experience I've had in the past with a community uh, with actually the city of Rockland, they had before we started working on the comprehensive plan, they did a program called Community Heart and Soul, which was basically um, them, you know, going out and and this was a very locally driven process, reaching out to community members. And I think it really kickstarted the community um, engagement and then helped us actually take those community heart and soul ideas and put those into a comprehensive plan um, as sort of guiding principles. Um, so some other process like that is actually a really good way to, you know, just to get the community on board and to try to create a good understanding of, of you know, what the what the goals and objectives are. Susan, talk yeah. about some of the techniques you've used to get people involved. Interestingly, um, Noel just mentioned community heart and soul, uh, Bucksport 
um, engage that process right after um, I came there in 2015 when the mill had closed and there were a whole lot of groups and uh, nobody was quite sure what direction um, we were going. And since the direction was going to be so different than what had been, we engaged Heart and Soul, which is grassroots, non-government driven to elicit what people like in a community and what their stories are about what they value and what they want to see in a positive way. And it did indeed set the tone. The comprehensive plan was in process at that same time, but the tone of heart and soul, which is to look at everything through a positive lens. What, what do I like? If you start down a negative road, you're going to end up in a bad place. If you, what don't you like? What don't you, that's where you go. But if you start in, what do you like? What do you value? What is important in this community? Um, the outcome is completely different. So that was a complementary process for us, but it was huge. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. Our guests this afternoon are Susan Lassard, Bucksport Town Manager, Noel Musson, Principal Planner with the Musson Group, and Evan Rickard, former Director of the State Planning Office. This program was pre-recorded on November 16th. No listener calls are being taken. So we're talking yeah. about the... Oh, go ahead, Susan. I'm sorry. To continue, the yeah. other things that we've done is... In places that I've been, we've hired good consultants who have tremendously helped the process. And part of the way they help the process is they're from outside and have an impartial view of where we are. Nobody who's running a meeting is seen as having a particular oar in the water, so to speak. They're there to listen to everyone. There's no, they don't have an, an affiliation with any particular we like this, we don't like that, we, you know, it's, uh, and it, um, in my experience, has helped the process tremendously to have that, and to have it, along with the consultant, to have as many citizen-related, non-people in power kind of representation in order that the people of the community really will emerge as part of the process and not be intimidated by everybody else that's at the table. Well, I mean, that gets to another question I wanted to ask. In all kinds of politics, you have power and you have the disempowered. And how do you keep this process from being dominated by the same powerful voices that may dominate politically Otherwise, you know, whether it's the affluent or the entrenched or the from here for generations or the from away. I mean, how do you keep it from um, making sure that all those voices are heard and represented and that the strongest and loudest voices don't dominate? And I'm going to ask you that, Evan, first, so everybody else can chip in later. Yes. I First of all, the makeup of the committee, as Susan said, should be really more the latter, not not the so-called powerful, not the representative. There should be representatives from those who are often involved and and influencers, but the majority should be other people from neighborhoods, um, from groups that you don't necessarily hear from all the time, and so forth. 
And when you're doing community outreach and the meetings, go go to them. Don't don't have them come to town hall all the time. Go to the local church or, the, or Grange Hall or elementary school or whatever it is, somebody's home and be welcomed in to that neighborhood and uh, as you're as you're doing your outreach and conducting some of your monthly meetings or whatever they are. And then hopefully they will be invested enough through that process that they will become part of the decision-making structure as the comprehensive plan is going through the final reviews and decisions and the implementation thereof. Do Is it your experience, Noel, or, or well, any one of you, that once people sort of get involved in this, they then become more engaged in civic life afterwards? Does that happen? I have certainly seen it. Um, I've also seen, you know, I, I should has, uh, jump in to say, as, as, as hard as you do, there will always be people at the 11th hour who will believe they were frozen out of it or didn't yeah. and will jump in and say, wait a second. Um, but yes, I, I have seen people run for office who had never done that before as a result of this process. Noel, do you want to chip in? Yeah, I think that definitely is the case. Um, you know, if, if you're opening the door to engagement in a in a process like that, it becomes something that uh, people get really passionate about, and and it does it can trickle down into becoming more more involved for sure. And I mean, these we're talking about communities that set out to make the process democratic and set out to be inclusive, right? But I mean, you can imagine. Um, an insular group on a city council or on a select board setting out to do it the other way too, right? Like how can citizens make sure that it doesn't turn out to be um, just the insiders running the whole show? Don't elect people who don't have your best interests at heart. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, it's like the basis of Uh, Really, and that sounds simplistic, but if you have a community where there's a a group that's in power that doesn't wish to share it, um, and it's an elected situation, the only way out of that situation is an election. That's just true. But that isn't true of the majority, not main communities. That's not what overall that my 42 years has shown me in this five communities I've been in, um, and I've lived in Maine my whole life, that truly people want to do the right thing. They don't always see the right thing as the same thing, and they don't always see the path to the right thing as the same path. But overall, I believe that people who run for public office in these communities, 5,000, 8,000, whatever, are, are doing it because they love their community and not and don't view their actions as trying to be negative. Although someone from outside might say, you know, why did you, but their path to where they are got them to where they are. So I think that this establishing a, a plan and and having people get involved in that will generate more people coming to your council meetings. It will, in, it will get more people running for public office. The more people engage, because they realize there's more to you than what they thought. 
there's more to this process, there's more to local government, there's more to their community in a legal way than people thought. People don't generally think about us at all unless the town does something that makes them mad. And so if they realize that we're doing a lot of things that are are helping them or could help them with their involvement, they tend to get more engaged. And it, but that is patience. Evan said it, patience. This is not fruit you're going to see in 25 minutes if you start planting the seeds. It takes time and consistent long-term effort to get your community to behave like a community instead of a bunch of people who will all live in the same place. Yeah. Well, we're running out of time this afternoon, and I want to give you each a minute or so to um, offer the listeners any concluding thoughts, and I'll go to you first, Noel. How would you wrap up our conversation today if you're a town that's thinking of or about to do comprehensive planning? Well, I would just say that I think uh, comprehensive plans are actually are an opportunity and not really a grind. Um, I think it's an opportunity to celebrate your community. I think Susan mentioned that. Um, earlier and Evan as well. And that is really the most, you know, fundamental part, you know, let's celebrate what's great about your community and start to work on thinking about how to maintain that and, and those aspects in the future. And that's, that's the, you know, the key, key takeaway. And also uh, let's spend time and value um, process over product um, sometimes is really the more important um, outcome. If you have a good process in a comprehensive plan, you're actually setting up good process for other things that you're going to doing that you're going to do as a community or things that come out of the comprehensive plan. That's good. Thank you. Susan, what about you? Final thoughts? I would agree with Noel that it really the comprehensive planning process, um, any good planning process and comprehensive planning is a good process can be a basis for so much more than just that plan. Um, going through it is one thing, gaining uh, community member involvement in your community, uh, creating greater understanding of where you are. And it, like even in our personal lives, it's almost impossible to do something with no plan in your life. And it's no different for a community. In order to have a good outcome, you have to have some idea of where you're going, but you have to know who you are, how you got to be what you are, and figure out in a consensus way where you want to go. And comprehensive planning provides a tool for a community to use to establish that. That's good. Um, Evan, the last word to you. You've got a few couple minutes here. Well, what, what Noel and Susan said, and listen 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 and then listen some more um don't be defensive think of the conference of plan as a love letter to your community a self-portrait that you want to be proud of and uh hmm. that, is, that is fair that is forward looking that takes you down a path that you really want to go one thing that it hasn't actually been quite mentioned, one of the things that really stirred the idea of the Growth Management Act was not only the tremendous conflict during the 1980s between developers and neighborhoods and the lawsuits and all the acrimony, 
that was part of it. But part of it was also an understanding that the New England town is a tremendously beautiful and functional structure. And the patterns of development that were unfolding were undoing that structure in a very expensive and often harmful way. And so one of the core elements of the growth management program is a community needs to identify where it wants to grow and where the rural areas that it wants to keep rural are there. Um, and, you know, that's a key element that um, I don't want, I wouldn't want people to lose sight of. Yeah. I would, one more thing in terms of communication, which is key to this entire process, is that 42 years ago, it was easier to do because everyone communicated pretty much the same way. You were sending things out in the mail, you were calling people on the phone, you were, it's a lot harder today to reach different generations who all communicate somewhat differently. You still have the, I don't want to see it unless it comes in my mailbox. You have the email, you have Facebook. I don't use Facebook. You have, you have a whole lot of social media um, ways of communicating that different generations use differently. And so if you're going to really reach people, your outreach needs to be comprehensive in terms of all of those platforms, or you're going to miss an, an entire generation who doesn't communicate the same yeah. way. Thank you all so much. We are now out of time. Um, thank you to our guests this afternoon, Susan Lassard, Bucksport Town Manager, Noel Musson, Principal Planner with the Musson Group, and Evan Rickert, former Director of the State Planning Office. It's been a great conversation and I learned so much. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows, shows in the series. Um, subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org. <laughs>